Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club and to Humanities West. I'm George Hammond. And tonight we have a great program for you on Leonardo da Vinci, the scientist artist. Uh, We did a program for Humanities West in 2019 uh, for a two-day program, which is the way Humanities West usually had these programs. Um, And tonight we're bringing back two of the speakers from that. Martin Kemp is uh, a professor emeritus at Oxford University, leading world scholar in uh, Leonardo da Vinci's art. Uh, We also have, for our second talk, Deborah Loft, who many of you at Humanities West know. She's given us many, many excellent speeches over the years. Um, and she's Professor Emerita of Art History uh, at the College of Marin. So, Martin. Hello, yep, I'm joining you from Woodstock near Oxford, which is much nicer than London. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for inviting me. It's a a great pity I can't get to San Francisco this year. um, It was great when I was there three years ago. Anyway, thanks to modern technologies, it's the next next best thing. And uh, thank you for... Um, to everyone who's helped set this up, and we hope it works well. I decided this time to do something slightly different, and that is to look at Leonardo, but to look at the run into Leonardo, as it were, um, how how 15th century Italian art was, with perspective above all, with optics, with the business of creating space and seeing space, how it was set up in, by Brunelleschi, and how it transmitted itself to Leonardo. So uh, this is Leonardo in context rather than just Leonardo. And I hope it works out all right and, uh, and that you'll, you'll enjoy it. So it's Science and Uncertainty um, from Brunelleschi to, to Leonardo. Next, right, Brunelleschi is where we start, and he was the inventor of perspective, or that is what we claim um, there are lots of different sorts of perspective. Anyway, he was the first person who achieved, since classical antiquity probably, the ability to do a, an optical projection of something on a flat flat surface and to have the optics make it look as if it's real space. He's known best, of course, for the great Florentine dome. He was an all-rounder. He, he was a polymath. He was a, an engineer, an architect a goldsmith, silversmith, and sculptor. Um, and the erection of the, the dome was, without centering, was an absolutely extraordinary achievement of engineering, not least. Um, Leonardo does have a role in this because uh, lightning strike, the ball, the gold ball on top of the lantern there, was knocked off, and, and Verrocchio, Leonardo's master, was charged with the job of repairing it and getting it back up again. Leonardo once wrote in a note, remember how the parlor, that's the ball of Santa Maria del Fiore, was, uh, was soldered together. So Leonardo is already appearing here. Next, Brunelleschi invented a method. The panels which he did these on, there were two panels he did. There was one of the baptistry, the one you're seeing here. This is the baptistry in front of the cathedral, um, looking away from his dome. And also one of the Palazzo Vecchio, the old palace, or the Palazzo dei Signori, the government palace, as it was at the time. I'm just looking at the at the baptistry one, about which we know a good deal more. How did he do this? He achieved a projection. This is a reconstruction of the description in the life of Brunelleschi by Manetti. And he describes it in a way which we can reconstruct it. How did he do this in an accurate perspective? Um, There have been a whole lot of things that have been suggested, but my strong feeling is it was done through his knowledge of surveying. As a young man, he went with Donatello, the absolutely wonderful sculptor to be, and the two young men went off to Rome and they measured antique buildings. Now, you can do that perfectly easily, as on the left, with various surveying devices Jacob's staff or whatever, but when you, you're surveying something, you're basically uh, measuring it on a plane in front of the object itself, and you can, you can then measure things which are smaller as they go further away, larger as they get closer. And I think what he's simply doing is doing a, 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 a measuring job on this cathedral and 
then marking all these salient points and filling in the uh, filling in the the detail as he goes along. But however he did it, he had created one, and it was very remarkable in a way. It was where the baptistry door is. That door goes in. He made a hole in the panel at that point. Uh, yes. And he set it up as a peep show. So with the hole in the panel, you hold the panel up, you look through it from the back with your eye, and you hold a mirror out in front of it, a, a mirror of the right size, so it absolutely fills the, your view. So you've got this mirror image. What you could then do is to take down the mirror, and you would then be able to see that the baptistry in front of you looked exactly the same, bar some clouds or passing traffic or whatever, but the basic building looked exactly the same. So it's a peep show which you could uh, achieve a re really remarkable image of the baptistry. He said he, Manetti said that he, he, he put a, sh a shiny material. He, he uh, silvered the sky. So you got real sky and you could see the clouds passing. This, however, is not terribly useful for painters. Painters are doing religious subjects at this point. They're not doing townscapes. I think Brunelleschi, the evidence is that he invented it around about 14, 12, 13, and it wasn't really picked up by artists until, uh, until the 20s. And the time lag is, but this was a nice demonstration, demonstrazione. It was a curiosity. It was an optical device but it wasn't seen as feeding into mainstream painting. It didn't help if you're wanting to paint a Madonna and child and saints to have a, a, be able to do a projection of the baptistry. The painter who first picked it up and really saw how it could be applied to painting was Masaccio. Yes. Above all in the Trinity in Santa Maria Novella. And I think this is based upon a... A plan and elevation. I think it is, as it were, based on a real building. And he used Manetti's Brunelleschi technique to plot the the appearance of the chapel in which uh, the Trinity is located. Could therefore create this architectural illusion. It's been quite damaged. There's an air, the one time the fresco was moved and it then was moved back again. Uh, but clearly what is happening is that the donors, the donor and his wife, uh, Luigi Lenzi, are kneeling on a platform underneath which is a skeleton, which rather alarmingly says, what, what you are, I was, what I am, you will become, which is a memento mori type one. The Virgin of St. John and the Trinity with the dove and God holding Christ. We can reconstruct, yes, we can reconstruct the panel and look at it, the fresco and look at it from the side. Um, on the left, you've got the viewpoint, which is just below the platform on which the donors kneel. And there I've traced the rays coming from the coffers and they can be marked off on the, on the, on the, on the side of the projection to give you the correct intervals. When I did an analysis of this, as on the right, we found that either there's a kind of internal contradiction going on here. Either the coffers, the square bits and the bent ceiling are not square but half square, or the chapel is, in which case the chapel is not square. If the chapel is square, the coffers are uh, a half, half width each time. I rather favour having the overall chapel. You're not bothered by that effect. It probably is a is convenient for his construction and it works absolutely well and it's only if somebody comes along and analyzes it you do see that you've either got a square chapel or a rectangular chapel depending on whether you prioritize the vault or you prioritize the the, the side chapel which they're in next what was needed was a way of of turning that into a geometric scheme which you could use for any picture these are really linked. Uh, Brunelleschi is linked, obviously, to the baptistry. The Masaccio painting is linked to the uh, virtually a building which has been designed as a as a as a full as a chapel. Um, let's hope the audio works on this. This is a one which I did for a, a, 
a book with profile books, which was suppressed by Amazon for some reason. Can we run the audio? The basic perspective construction was first explained by Leon Battista Alberti in his book On Painting in 1435. The aim was to construct a tiled floor on which figures and objects can be located. We imagine the picture as a window through which we see things. We decide the height of the horizon. We decide where our line of sight directly strikes the picture and mark it on the horizon. This is later called the vanishing point. We mark out a series of regular intervals along the base of the picture, indicating the width of the tiles. Alberti's tiles were one braccio, or arm length wide, which he took as one third of the height of a man. These marks along the base are joined to the vanishing point on the horizon. We next need to work out the horizontal lines for the tiles. To do this, we look at the picture from the side, with the tiles of the floor to the left, marked as points on the baseline. We locate the eye of the spectator to the right, at whatever position we choose. We join the viewpoint of the eye to the points marking the tiles, and note where these lines cut the vertical of the picture. These intervals are then transferred to the front view of the picture, and the horizontal lines are drawn in to complete the tiled floor. All objects can then be located at any depth on the grid, according to their scales in relation to the grid at that depth. Masaccio's Trinity shows the coffered vault in perspective, with a vanishing point just below the platform on which the donors kneel. By taking Alberti's tiled floor and bending it into a semicircle, we can see how the perspective of the vault works. In the early 20th century, the cubist shattered perspective Let, let's into take a series that. of facets of space and form. Excellent. Yeah, the, the, I love those animated diagrams. They, they're so much easier to understand if you see the process than having a very complex diagram or even a s series of diagrams. Uh, artists, a number of artists, then began to take up this basic perspective construction using the tiled floor as the, as the measuring device, as it were, for the figures. And this is the, the great Brunelleschi, the great Lorenzo Ghiberti. This is a panel from the Porta del Paradiso, the Jacob panel, with a tiled floor and all the figures duly scaled. Ghibetti did two sets of doors. The first one is on the top and the left. And these are still basically rather gothic in format with a, a quatrefoil, a curved geometric frame and very little space behind the plane of the relief. It basically is a relief sculpture. Uh, the Porta del Paradiso, as Michelangelo called it, the, um, the Gates of Paradise, the second one, which has begun in 1424, um, was a series of, rec of square uh, pictorial panels. So he began to treat the relief sculpture as if it were a picture, which he does, I think, very brilliantly. Um, Ghiberti is interesting, but not least for doing the, the doors, but he's also interesting because he compiled a commentaries, uh, a kind of commonplace book. He wrote a history of ancient art got from Pliny, he wrote about the art of his Giotto up to his own time, and he did describe some of the motifs and some of the uh, practices he applied in his own artistic practice. And he does a collage, uh, a mixture, an editing of a series of optical texts, including one by Ibn al-Haytham. Yes? The great Islamic a uh, philosopher, polymath, who wrote a book on, in Latin, it's translated as De Aspectibus, on appearances. And on the title page of the printed edition in the 1570s, you see various activities going on, including using burning mirrors for burning up the fleet, something they knew from Archimedes. Anyway, this, uh, this text was an absolutely standard text. It was translated into Latin, the standard text for optical science in the 
in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance. Ghiberti, by adopting optical science, says clearly the painter's perspective, the technique invented by Alberti, is part of optical science, which in, Italian, in Latin is called perspectiva. That means optics, not, not in the, the specialised way that we now use it. Um, or, and prospettiva in, in Italian. Yes? A series of artists, avant-garde artists, then pick up on this technique for creating space. One of the most whimsical and inventive and uh, jolly makers of space is Paolo Uccello. This is uh, in the court, in the cortile of in the courtyard of Santa Maria Novella, a series of more or less monochrome paintings. This is the most perspectival of them all. This is uh, the story of Noah. You've got the ark on the left when it's being assaulted by wind and rains and so on. On the right, you've got the dove coming in, and this is the. Uh, the, re the relenting of the flood and the, eventually the, the finding of dry land. Uh, the, two, the two big uh, arcs which carry the, carry the animals are depicted on the left and on the right. And there are very odd whimsical perspective motifs. If you look at the two men who are fighting in the lower left side of it, one of them has got a, a, a strange device which has fallen down round his neck. Um, this is a mazzocchio. It's a hollow, lightweight frame for fancy hats. And I've got, you can see on the right, the Uccello with the man whose hat has been swiped away during, during, the, during the storms and the battle which is going on, which he's fighting. And the, his, his mazzocchio has collapsed around his, uh, collapsed around his neck. And there you see in a painting by Masolino, the colleague of Masaccio, and what these hats look like with these uh, very uh, big rounded brims. Anyway, it's a very whimsical structure. And this object, this faceted mazzocchio, this donut made out of, made out of squares, um, became something of a course celebre for people who wanted to do perspective it became like a five finger exercise on the piano it was a, a routine way of saying i can do perspective and i can do everything in order yes and we've got drawings of them um these may be uccello drawings he there's a chalice and and mazzocchio uh, all constructed meticulously in perspective there's a rather nice story about these drawings. Uh, in 1992, we did a huge exhibition in the National Gallery of Washington called Circa 1492, which was celebrating uh, Columbus uh, in 1492, and we did it in 1992. And we did a video called Masters of Illusion, which we worked with Hollywood special effect filmmakers and looked at all these perspectival things, animated them, and so on. And I gave the, these images to the men who were making the film, the computer specialists, and uh, they said, when was this done? I said, 1442. No, they said, when was it done? And I said, 1442. And they absolutely couldn't believe it. it was, this is the wireframe system, which is still used for constructing three-dimensional aspects in a computer. So here is Paolo Uccello. Um, if, it, if these drawings are by Uccello, doing what uh, the wireframes, which was something of a staple of computer graphics. The, we can attribute at least some of these Matsoki next. Uh, this is in a book by Piero della Francesca, who we'll be looking at as a painter shortly, called De Prospectiva Pingendi on the Perspective of Painting. And here he's doing the Matsocchio and he's explaining how it works. And there you see he's doing a plan of a Matsocchio and he can then cut that pyramid with a plane and, and locate all the points. And then you simply join up the points to make your, your, your solid Matsocchio. Um, Pirozzo Francesco, probably the greatest perspectival artist of the 15th century. Yes.
his most famous painting in perspective, the flagellation. Uh, we don't know much about this painting, uh, what its function is. It's not an altarpiece, it's quite a small painting, um, but it is very special and very extraordinary. Um, the flagellation of Christ in the background with three figures standing in the foreground. Originally, the frame had the frame has been removed. You can see where it's come, where it's been removed from. And the frame originally had the inscription Convenerant in Unum. They conspire together. So these are representatives of the types of people who conspired to further the crucifixion of Christ. And you see him being flagellated in the background. Uh, the perspective is absolutely remarkably brilliantly carried out right into the deep background. It's, it goes so far into the background that it, it becomes so tight that you actually can't draw separate lines. Um, interestingly, in this perspectival scene with the light coming from outside, he's created a special divine light. If you look in the coffer above on the ceiling compartment above Christ, and above that uh, go little golden statue, you can see there's a bright light coming from a different place in the picture, and only Christ sees it. So you've got the exterior geometry of the geometry in the, in the actual world, and you've got the miraculous light, which only Christ is aware of. The others are completely oblivious to it. The geometry in the tiled floors is very extraordinary, and... Has, has its own meaning. Next. Pierre Francesca and De Prospectiva Pingendi invent, invented a way of getting any point projected in perspective. Here he's wanting to locate the point P in this uh, basic square at the bottom on a, on a receding plane. You can see the basic lines where he does it and he comes up with uh, with a P1, which is the perspectival projection of it. And the advantage of this, it means you can take any shape, and on the right is a tilted polyhedron. Um, you can take any shape and plot it point by point. If we do that, and if we deproject the work, we find that the tiled floor with this black and white pattern is as on the right. And it's a very cunning construction because the Diagonal, the diagonals of the smaller squares equal the side length of the longer squares. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, and this distinguishes the tiling inside the praetorium, inside this porch, with the, with the tiling outside. The tiling outside is uh, simply arithmetical. You've simply got tiles which are divided up into regular squares. This gives a privilege to that very elaborate uh, perspective construction. And then Christ himself stands in an even more revered pattern, that is a circle. A circle, it was known that uh, uh, squaring the circle was very difficult. It was a, an ir irrational, would require an irrational number. So we've got a hierarchy. We've got the outside arithmetical divisions. You've got a very fancy tiled floor relying upon basically Pythagoras' theorem, and then you've got a, a, a circle waiting to be squared. So the, there are all sorts of hierarchies of space. So perspective is not simply an illusion. It's a way of conveying meaning, in this case, a very profound way. You must wonder, I suppose, how many of the spectators in Piero's time or later have worked all this out, but it is there. He's, he's put it all in there if you want to... Uh, work on it and extract that meaning. Yes. Piero della Francesca again in the San Francesco and Arezzo, a, a series of frescoes, wall paintings devoted to the story of the true cross. Um, here they got very brilliant geometrical light, the battle tents in the battle tent of, uh, of Constantine, uh, very beautifully described with directional light. Um, the angel sweep, swoops down and he has a dream, Constantine, that if he goes into battle against Maxentius the next day, he'll be victorious and become the Roman emperor. Uh, the, the angel is zooming down and this is like a kind of rocket ship with a very, very bright, brilliantly bright cross. 
But what is happening here is that the ordinary figures don't see the light. They don't see the vision. They don't see the light. Constantine has his eyes closed. Uh, but, of course, divine light breaks all the rules and can be seen, uh, whereas the two guardian soldiers and the page of the of Constantine don't see it at all because it's it's privileged, rather like the sight in the sight of Christ in the flagellation. So Piero is working with two sorts of light, divine light and natural light. Divine light doesn't follow the rules. Natural light does. Yes, And in Urbino, where Piero de Francesca worked for Francesco de Montefeltro, uh, a very effective soldier and a very learned man, a man of sword and a man of the books, um, he has a studiolo, two studiolos, two studies, um, one in Gubbio and the main one here in Urbino, in which inlaid wood uh, create absolutely incredible uh, perspectival images. You've got the Matsocchio, our old friend, the Matsocchio has appeared again. Now, Millery Sphere, a quadrant, this is tying it into, into astronomy and music. And music, of course, has a mathematical harmonies. So this is all about the, the arts and mathematics and science and art as indissoluble unity of, uh, of things. Yes. And Piero invented a way of doing not just Matsoki, uh, not just geometric forms, but also natural forms, complex forms, like the human head. You can see here he's plotted a human head. He's allocated points around the, uh, around the head. These are the points which he's going to project into space so he can then join up the points to, to make the head in a, at any particular angle. On the left, you see... Um, Two, vertic two vertical views of the head and two horizontal section views. And on the right, you see the rays beginning to be projected across to the plane on the left, which means they can all be, um, all be joined up. Incredibly, it's not difficult geometrically, but incredibly time-consuming. And you need a lot of patience and a lot of careful drawing to, to create this. You may ask, did Piero really do this in his paintings, or was it just a a learning exercise to learn about perspective. The answer is he absolutely did use this in, in his paintings, yes. Here, this is the end of a construction where he's got the, the head not tilted in a single plane, but turning and tilted. And those are all the marks there which he has registered so he can transfer them to the side of the head. So here you've got a foreshortened head from an unusual and angular view. And if we look at the resurrection he painted in his in the town hall of his native town, Borgo San Sepulcro, next, you will see exactly these things happening. Christ in the resurrection is full frontal. He isn't affected by perspective at all. He's seen in a rather iconic way. The soldiers, on the other hand, are seen with tilted heads, and they, given the care which Piero took with things, these are undoubtedly projected. The one who's just to the left of Christ's right thigh, that one is basically the one we've we've seen, and which is there visible for us on the on the right. Uh, perspective was incredibly important for 15th century artists. It gave them a theory. It gave them a mathematics. Uh, Painting wasn't regarded as a liberal art. Music was. Music had Pythagorean harmonies. Music was a, a mathematical art. Um, so what perspective did for painters, it gave them a learned theory. It gave them their own geometry, their own optics. And Piero Francesca's De Prospectiva Pingendi was given to the Duke of Urbino and was in his library. And Piero also wrote a book on the five regular solids, the five platonic solids. So he was a, a very good geometer mathematician uh, with three-dimensional th objects. Yes. This I couldn't resist showing you this. This is not, strictly speaking, perspective. Well, I suppose it is. The toes are foreshortened. But you should be able to see around the edges of the, the knuckles of the toes, as it were, lots of little spots 
This is the spulvery. These are the little black dots when you're transferring from a pricked cartoon. You have a pricked full-scale drawing. You, you make a series of pricks around the shape that you wish to record, and you then dust uh, charcoal dust through the holes. You can see the charcoal dust is still there. In the flagellation, the turban of one of the people who's flagellating Christ is done with a cartoon, and it's about the size of a fingernail. He's one of these crazy artists who just has to get everything right. It's a moral moral uh, contract, as it were, he has with divine order of nature. Um, and he can't but do it correctly, because that's what you have to do. Next. Right, Leonardo. That's right, some setting for the incredible, incredibly clever use of perspective. Some artists use perspective just to make space, but... The ones I picked out there, Ghiberti, Uccello, uh, um, Piero della Francesca, don't just do the space for illusion. They do it for, for narrative, for understanding the meaning of the picture and for a very, very profound sense of the, the orders in nature. Next. Early on, Leonardo read Alberti's book on painting and Alberti talks about the visual pyramid um, imagining or claiming that the, the visual rays go into the eyes and, as, as this pyramid. And the pyramid acts almost like um, dividers. It can measure the, the widths of things. So this is a very simplified version of the eye. Alberti knew some of the optical texts and knew it's simplified, but it, it does to, as a demonstration as to how perspective works, that... Uh, you receive the forms geometrically in the eye as if they're coming to a point. The text here is interesting. It's written rather oddly for Leonardo from left to right rather than his normal mirror writing. And it's a translation of the book on perspective by John Peckham, a 14th century English Franciscan called De, Prospect De Prospectiva Communis on standard or on regular perspective. And it, it's a hymn in praise of optics. Um, Peckham says how wonderful, glorious optics is. It's the greatest science of nature as it confirms the geometry and order of God's design. And that appealed to Leonardo so much that he wrote it out. And as I say, he wrote it out left to right, which he doesn't normally bother to do with his uh, mirror writing. He's a left-hander. He finds it natural to write that way. Yes? And we can see his, uh, this pyramid actually in, in action. This is rather quite late in Leonardo's career, but this is a series of four drawings of eight shoulders. And he selects a series of views around the outside. On the left, the, the little diagram on the left is the one in which he records these visual pyramids, lots of them, and says that if you go round the same, same circumference, um, the pyramids remain the same. If you take the viewpoint away, the pyramids get narrower and things look narrower. And he then, the little diagram on the right is extracted from the bottom right of the, the shoulders diagram. You can see exactly the same diagram. He's moving his eye around. And he says you can either move the eye around or you can move the shoulder around. But this is optical plotting. This is Peckham's triangles and Alberti's triangles and pyramids used to get a complete view of the of the shoulder. Yes. yes. And at the heart of all this is the pyramid. It's a pyramid of perspective. It's a pyramid in reverse of, uh, of the speed of a falling thing. It's the pyramid of something thrown through the air. So he sees that all the forces in nature, as they expend themselves, they... Ex expend themselves pyramidally, that's to say, according to a set ratio, halfway back, they're half the size, three-quarters of the way back, they're a quarter of the size, and so on. He does this pyramid in a number of places. Um, this one is in the Codex Arundel in the British Museum, but it's a, it's a regular standby. And if he says you throw something through the air, it will get slower according to the ratio spelt out with the pyramid that it will gradually expend its impetus um, um, in, the, in much the same way as uh, 
as a ball would expend its uh, light expends its impetus, ball expends its impetus, and so on. So it's a very crafty proportional way of plotting the diminution or increase in forms in terms of in terms of an object which is falling rather than being thrown uh, through gravity. Now, yes. Early in his career, his, the first really big painting he undertook but didn't finish um, when he left Milan in 1481 and 1482 to go to... Uh, when he left Florence in 1481 or two to go to Milan. Um, the Adoration of the Magi here, he decides to put a very elaborate perspectival background in uh, with all sorts of unrest occurring, the, the turbulence... He sees the arrival of Christ on earth as something which is awesome, amazing, and um, unsettling. The drawing on the right in the Uffizi is just extraordinary. Um, a meticulous perspective construction done with tiny, tiny intervals um, going back into the distance until the, the thickness of the lines becomes, even Leonardo's thin lines become too thick to be plotted separately. Uh, to make life even more detailed, one of the tiles he divides up into, into tenths so that he can come down even smaller in perspectival scale. And he controls this by drawing a diagonal through these squares, um, which is a way of checking the perspective is coming out right or constructing perspective. Yes. And, of course, the Last Supper, which is the most famous of his uh, perspectival pictures, the most dramatic of them. Um, creating the upper room in which Christ and his disciples met, the upper room of the of the Bible. Um, in the end wall of the refectory of, San, uh, of Santa Maria della Grazia in Milan, painted, it was underway about 1495, and it was painted slowly. It's painted in a tempera technique, not a fresco technique. Fresco is painting in wet plaster. Tempera is what you would normally use for painting on panels. And uh, it's, it, it, it's problematic if you paint it on walls because it tends to flake off, um, as, uh, as happened with some of the Last Supper. But here, this is a very orderly mathematical vision. He takes the, the, the uh, coffers and the ceiling up to some distance behind the plane of the picture, and we'll have a look at that. Now, yes. In the diagram on the left, you can see that he's taking the the coffers up to the level of that central lunette. So he's creating an island of perspective. He tied it in more with the walls, then it would be very vulnerable to spectators changing their position. So he's um, he's created an island of re really compelling space, focusing on Christ. Um, but uh, doesn't tie it too too visibly as it were into the into the plane of the wall yes this is the earliest drawing we have of the last supper and it shows him considering different moments in time the drawing on the top left judas is seated on the other side of the table which is absolutely traditional leonardo doesn't want that in his final version and but on the right to that the right of that uh, drawing of, of his first thoughts about the table, you see Christ sit, sitting there, then Judas is getting up and dipping his bread into the same plate as, the same dish as uh, Christ is doing. And Christ uh, announces that the one who does that is the one who's going to betray him. Now, I think there's no way that Leonardo is going to paint that in the picture. It's not the subject of the picture. The subject of the picture is the institution of the Eucharist, the bread and the and the bread and the wine but it's 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 very typical of his mind that he's got a subject and he can't but go off exploring other elements of it he's like a filmmaker in that way this is a kind of storyboard for a film rather than just a static fresco but one of the interesting things about this drawing is it's got a geometrical construction on it this is using straight edge and compass to construct a, a, a um, an octagon um, and on the on the left, you can see some architectural structures. So this construction is related to architecture. And on the very left, there are a series of hum, series of numbers, 
these don't add up, they don't work as subtractions, they don't work as multiplications. And I think there are almost certainly harmonic ratios um, working out the, the music, as it were, of mathematical proportions, which is what he's doing in the picture. On the right, we've marked up, I've marked up the, the tapestries at the side and their ratios, and they go one to a half to a third to a quarter. Um, so these are set musical ratios, as it were. If we deproject the side wall, if we turn it round and look at the actual widths of the tapestries to do that, the tapestries would have to get wider as they go back. So this is a contrivance. He's not expecting you to work out that this is not actually, strictly speaking, accurate if you assume the tapestries are the same size, but he's creating this, uh, this musical language of painting of these harmonic ratios, of uh, the sort of harmonic ratios which you find in, in Pythagorean musical theory. Yes? And probably the most notable of his perspectival achievements is the illustration he provided for a book by his friend, um, Luca Pacioli, um, Franciscan monk and a, uh, a major writer on mathematics. He wrote a textbook on mathematics um, and also with Leonardo did a, a book on the five regular solids, often called later the Platonic solids, and what happens when you truncate them and you stellate them. This is a dodecahedron which has been truncated, i.e. you cut off the corners and you end up with a semi-regular figure with pentagons and, and triangles. He invented this technique of showing them as solid bodies. Uh, previously, as on the left, all these bodies, and this is Luca Pacioli, uh, are done as line diagrams. are very difficult to work out. Once you throw it into three dimensions like that, you get a real sense of this solid body which has been truncated. And then he also invented this technique called fenestration. That's to say putting the, making the sides like windows so you can see through so you can get a sense of the full 3D structure of it. Um, you can see what's behind us, what's in, what's in front. Um, incredibly brilliant illustrations. And this book was printed in 1509 in Florence. So this is the only Leonardo design which appeared uh, published and in print. Uh, it was immensely influential. Um, when Kepler was doing his designs of the heavens in his initial thoughts about the design of the cosmos, he adopts these um, geometric solids as the, his guiding principles. Yes. And this is one which is stellated. This is a dodecahedron which has had these prisms or the, tri the, the triangulated bodies built on the sides of them to create a very elaborate structure. And for an exhibition in the Victoria and Albert Museum, we animated these. These are very difficult to explain to a spectator. I defy anyone to write a 200-word label for this, which we had in the exhibition of Leonardo at the V&A. I challenge anyone to write a 500-word label for that and make it comprehensible, but we animated it. Um, or rather, Steve Maher of Impossible Pictures animated it. Yes? There we are. I think Leonardo would have loved that. Um, you get a sense with his drawings. He often, you can always hear him saying, move, come on, move. Anyway, we can do that for him. And uh, Steve Maher, Impossible Pictures. We did a whole series of animations for the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, and I love them because they make difficult things clear. Once you see it happening, rather like the perspective demonstration we did at the beginning, once you see it step by step happening, and it becomes much clearer than if we're struggling with static diagrams and trying to make sense of them. And next, Leonardo, of course, does Matsokyi. And being Leonardo, he has to do incredibly elaborate ones. And this uh, Matsokyo uh, formed out of fenestrated, uh, it's a fenestrated mat Matsokyo. It's done, first of all, on, on the right, and it's then folded over. Once he's got one side of it done, he can say, well, I'd simply copy that round. And uh, it's pricked through and he can do the second half a lot more easily than he does the first half. 
But you, you, this is not for a painting. It's just the sheer joy of geometrical construction, the sheer beauty of the results. Um, no Matsuki would be like this. It would be too, much too heavy to wear, one suspects. But it is the sheer joy in seeing things in space and the sheer joy of the, the music of geometry. Yes. And in one case, he actually does express his pride at being able to, being able to do these things. This is a little drawing. It's the kind of DNA of um, a Matsuki. So he's taken the Matsuki and he's actually twined two Matsuki around each other. And it's worth just reading out the and translating the, the the inscription here. The first bit to the above the diagram, Corpo Nato della Prospettiva di Leonardo Vinci, Discepolo della Esperienza, um, body born of the perspective of Leonardo da Vinci, disciple of experience. He he loves the term experience, which covers both experiment and what we would call experiment. He says, you're dealing with real things, they're concrete, it's experience. And then below it, he says, sia fatto questo corpo senza d'alcun corpo, ma solamente con semplice linee. Um, it will be made, uh, this body, without any body. So it's a body without body, but all only with simple lines. So this is a wire frame, as it were. It's a concept. It's not to be built as a solid body. But he has this enormous pride in thinking I can go one better than even the Matsuki, not just do an elaborate one, but to twist two Matsuki um, together in this uh, in this kind of uh, Renaissance DNA. Yes. But Leonardo, from the time of the Adoration onwards, had begun to realise there were some problems with perspective. And this is just some basic, very rough sketches thinking about perspective in the in the adoration, and the building is on the left as it was going to be in the adoration. And he's used the diagonals to construct the scene as he did in the big big diagram. But on the left, he realises that if you apply perspective rule to everything, they begin to go wrong. You've got the three round objects in the to the left in the middle. And these are columns, and the, the apex of the pyramid on the right is where the eye is. And he's thinking, if you've got your eye there and you're looking across at that angle to the columns, that eventually the distance between the columns seems to disappear. That the columns occlude the one next to it. And of course, you don't do that if you're painting a picture. If you've got columns going across in front of you, perpendicular to the picture plane, a parallel with the picture plane, and they're spaced out evenly or they're the same width. So he's beginning to get rather bothered by these anomalies with perspective, particularly at wide angles. Yes. And this is a virgin and ch virgin child with St. John the Baptist, the ch children at play, um, probably linked him with the Madonna of the Rocks, which he was doing in Milan. But he's done on the bottom right-hand corner a small geometrical diagram. And there you've got the, the setup is looked at from the side. The eye is up in the top right-hand corner. It's looking through the vertical plane down to the ground level. And what he notices, if it's that close and at a steep angle, the vertical side length of that square, if we're going to turn it into a square, is bigger than the horizontal and you, of course you can't have it, that it gets bigger as it goes further away. Um, it, um, so this is another anomaly. And I think it's suggested in the, in the drawings on the right by the fact that the Virgin is very close to the front of the picture and would be sub subject to these kind of distortions if you plotted her in precise perspective. And I think the two diagrams are linked up. But here's Leonardo, he's nagging away at him, he's saying... Yeah, there are problems with perspective. Next. And the problems are partly perspective themselves, but also because he becomes aware of traditional optical science. In the early phase, he's using Alberti and he's using rather simple geometry. Um, by the time he writes Manuscript D in the Institut de France, which is um, 
in 157 or so, he knows that things are very complicated. In the left here, let's run through these drawings. This is an edition of Ibn al-Haytham, al-Hazan, as he's called in the West. And there's no sense at this early stage of the lens as a, as a focusing mechanism for reasons which I could talk about later if you're interested. But there's no focusing lens, so they have to have an elaborate system for sorting out the rays as they come in. And there are, you've got these, you've got the crystalline humor, the what we would call the lens, and various other humors which um, refract the light coming in to make the image intelligible. Um, the second from the left is an illustration in Peckham's Perspectiva Communis, slightly simpler, but again, work trying to work out how the eye works as a very complicated optical instrument. Then in the middle, this is Leonardo picking up on these complex forms, now with a spherical crystalline humor, um, and thinking about the rays come in, they cross over as in a camera obscura, and he says the the, the round lens, the crystalline humor, reinverts the image so it's not seen upside down. Um, Kepler showed that the image was seen upside down, but he didn't worry about getting it the right way up again. Um, on the right, two pages from this manuscript E, the one I cited from the Institut de France, and there you can see very typically in the top right of the left-hand page, he's thinking about an experiment, a sperienza, um, make make that in a glass globe, put in a, gl a glass ball in the centre and see if that is what happens. In the, in the in the earlier diagram, the one with the box, he's, he's again thinking about an experiment uh, to see if there, this really works. But what he gained from this was the idea that seeing is incredibly complicated. He became interested in visual deceptions and illusions in something being too bright, too big, too fast, too far away, too close, and all the problems with sight. So sight, rather than just being a very meticulous recorder of the geometry of light, becomes a, a complex organic mechanism which has got all sorts of strangeness and complications to it. Yes? I'll skip over that slide because I'm running out of time and it's a bit... Uh, uh, he, he talks about what happens when a wheel spins. He says when a wheel spins, you can't see the spokes. When you tune the string of a lute and pluck it, you can't see the string as it's vibrating. He doesn't paint this. It would be bad manners. This is Velasquez Las Hilandras. This is the first one I know that actually paints blur. And whether Leonardo would like this, I don't know. He, he considered a wheel, if you're painting a wheel, you painted it with spokes and not not deal with the optical deception, because this is an optical deception, which is discussed by Ibn al-Haytham, things which are too fast and, um, and too big and so on. Yes. And if we look at his paintings from the time when he's doing these this revised thing, the paintings become more and more blurred. Uh, people generally call it sfumato, but that's not Leonardo's term. He writes at one point in manuscript D, the eye does not know the edge of any body. That's to say nothing is seen absolutely precisely clearly. Perhaps his own sight was going a bit, but it is uh, uh, based upon the supposed anatomy of the eye that the eye never sees anything uh, without some kind of... Uh, blurring it gets really bad close up it's really you don't see very well clear further away there is an optimum point but even the optimum point for vision um, is softened and and blurred next yeah and we look into the eye of the Mona Lisa um, we we put in lines but there are really no lines there, there are borders but there are no absolute set linear linear forms. And this is absolutely in keeping with his science. So the science of seeing, the, the science of knowing that you, we never see the edge of anybody perfectly is absolutely at one with the artistic techniques, this technique of glazing to create very soft effects. And next, if we look at late works, we can see that they're full of this. You don't have perspective in the late works. 
you have the blackness of the void. You have light coming in. We may feel it's a miraculous light. And the figures themselves are ineffable. What he's doing here is he's taking um, the image and making it indefinite or, so that we never quite see it. It's elusive, it's ineffable, it's slightly out of reach. The beloved ladies in Renaissance poems are out of reach, and so Mona Lisa is. But here the spiritual figures are, are present, but not fully understandable. So he's using a well-known theological technique, a double, double truth, where you've got the truth we can understand on earth and the truth which we have to wait for heaven to explain to us or for us to discover for, our, for ourselves. Um, and these pictures are about that double truth. Um, they're seen, but they're not seen. Yes? Zooming in on the Salvatore Mundi, this very controversial picture, which I'm convinced is largely Leonardo and the St. John the Baptist. These are late pictures full of spiritual mystery, full of the mystery of the unknown. Um, they know the secrets, we don't. Next. And this corresponds to with one of Leonardo's statements late in his life. I leave the definition of the soul to the minds of the friars, father of the people who by inspiration possess the secrets. I let be the sacred writings, for they are the supreme truth. This is a very profound conclusion towards the end of his life. Leonardo has been so wedded to the absolute uh, rule of optical law, of perspective and so on. And here he's realized in terms of science, in terms of anatomy, the eye, in terms of spiritual expression, in terms of light, that uh, things are much more complicated than just the perspective which seem to create naturalistic effects. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Martin. And uh, we have uh, questions. And if anybody has a question in the audience, uh, we, you can ask it directly into a mic that will be brought around. Um, there's one that came over the uh, Internet. And, uh, and if anybody else is uh, watching the live stream and you would like to send in a question for Martin, just go ahead right ahead. Um, this one is uh, someone uh, mentioned that in old ancient times, uh, the idea they thought was that light came out of the eye and saw things, and then at what point did it, it turn around and say, no, it's light going into the eye? Isn't it around the Renaissance? That's yeah, the, uh, in classical antiquity, the, the Platonic interpretation of this was, didn't rule absolutely, but yes, the, the idea was that you, there were rays that went out from the eye, and they acted as sort of measurers and registers of what was being seen, um, the arguments against that were notably strong. And Ibn al-Haytham, the, the Islamic optical scientist, said this is really not the case. It was you can't on that basis. If you have rays coming out from the eye, they would take some time. And he says, as soon as you open your eyes, everything is there. So the, the light has been coming all the time into us. Um, and Leonardo absolutely believed that. And by the Renaissance... Um, uh, people were were reasonably convinced that uh, the eye received light rather than sent out searchlights looking looking for the seen thing and registering its size, distance, shape, color, and so on. Uh, related question about optics, and that was uh, personal for you. Uh, you were a professor of art. How did you... Is this like a tangential thing, the, the, the total study of optics and the science of it, or, or, or did you study that earlier? Um, there's a bit, of, a bit of biography here. I did natu natural sciences at Cambridge, mm. uh, botany, zoology in particular, and I got into Leonardo rather by accident. A, t a young trainee television producer was making his diploma program on Leonardo and the water drawings. I don't know why he chose them, rather an odd choice. But um, anyway, none of the big figures are going to do it, so it knocked down to me. Mm. And I, I looked at Leonardo and I thought, this is fascinating. I, it always looked big and difficult and still does. But I thought I can actually get some sense of what's happening here. So I thought, natural sciences, where do I begin with Leonardo? I begin with anatomy. 
And I then realized the anatomy was all of a piece with the painting that the, the science of the human body, the science of how the brain works, the science of how the eye works, all these are a unified field. We section them off in terms of science and art or into smaller subsections of optics and geometry and so on. For Leonardo, there is a con total continuity. Uh, painting is about, uh, about experience, about how you can translate what you see, understanding the science of seeing into a painting. So they, they didn't occupy different realms at all. It's, it's, it's a very, very remarkable vision, and it's, I think, different for anything anybody else has. Uh, no, people who use perspective are interested in perspective and seeing. And there are lots of treatises later about perspective and the geometry of, of sight. But Leonardo is the person who automatically thinks of them as a single field of investigation. You think we've lost something by getting too specialized along that line? We've lost big time. I've actually just done a, a, a series of lessons on the web called the uh, Da Vinci Network, which is looking at Leonardo's holistic view of the world and looking at how it relates to what we're doing today. Rather personal statement, but anyway, anyone who wants to, wants to look at that, it's a Da Vinci Masterclass. And one of the things I'm saying in that is that he saw human beings as nature, as an indissoluble whole. And if you do that and you reflect on our body as a, as a microcosm, a little world reflecting the big world, we should develop more respect to what we're doing uh, for the world. That um, he, he knew nature wouldn't be pushed around. He was a canal engineer. And he discovered through experience you couldn't push water around. You couldn't make it do what it wanted to do, certainly on the scale of the Arno. So his basic message was you learn from nature, you learn from the human body, you learn about the wholeness of our being in, in nature as a whole. And uh, it's, it's a message which we don't have to look at Leonardo for messages, but it's a message which was relevant in his day and it's even more relevant in ours where we've compartmentalized our knowledge. For some years I used to write a column in Nature, the science magazine, and I, I would say I understood about 30 of the articles, in 30% of the ones in Nature, about another 30% I could get something out of and 30% I couldn't understand. That has now changed and I doubt whether I can understand fully more than 25% of the Nature the articles in Nature. They're so technical, so many acronyms, so many, so much data. And I think we're, we're making ourselves more difficult to understand. All right. Questions from the audience. As an expert on Leonardo and seeing the slide you showed of the Salvatore Bundi, do you know more about the whereabouts of the most recent sale? Uh, I don't. I've been quote, quoted in the papers as saying I was being summoned to Saudi Arabia. And somebody then asked me what happened in Saudi Arabia. The answer is I didn't. I haven't had a summons. I haven't gone. <laughs> there are some some possible contacts, but no more than that. And I can't. The the owner seems to be Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, but even that is not uh, certified. Uh, so it, it has effectively disappeared. I'm hoping I might have some role in uh, getting it back into the public domain so it is, it is actually visible. But it is very remarkable. Uh, 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 the story of the Salvador Mundi has become obscure, or the nature of the painting of the Salvador Mundi has become obscured by the stories, just stories of ownership, of attribution, and so on. I wrote a piece in the art newspaper, and I finished the article saying, poor picture. It deserves better, better than this, all these sensationalized stories. But uh, I've got no, no secrets I'm not telling you about. Yes. And uh, Martin gave a, a talk here at the Commonwealth Club back in February of 2019 on Salvatore Mundi, on that painting. That is still available, on, an audio version on a podcast, if you just you can look it up on the Commonwealth Club website. All right. Still Didn't available. Any I'm, other I'm questions looking. for Martin? Before we let him go to sleep, 
It's now 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Anything else? Okay, great. Thank you so much, Martin, for joining us from London. It's, it's my, my pleasure. I've never done it this, in, in the middle of the night before, but uh, not as fluent as I might be, but I got away with it, I think. <laughs> Way more than fluent enough. Thank you so much, Martin. Okay, my pleasure, and uh, best wishes to the audience, and uh, have a good day. Happy holidays, too. Okay. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.